find Exodus. Free at last. Tonight's title, a bit unique. Uh Uh-oh, things have suddenly changed and we might be in trouble. That's tonight's title. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel, that is, Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time... Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. And in fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look. The people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. The little word and, you'll see here, the little word and is the first word in the book of Exodus. That's officially how the book begins. And then after the word and, you see the names of the sons of Israel who moved to Egypt. And it points out, obviously, that Joseph and his sons were already there. And so with the book beginning with the word and, what does that tip you off to right off? A continuation, exactly. It's the continuation of Genesis. In fact, let me encourage you to do something as a Christian. When you read the Pentateuch, and what is the Pentateuch? It's the first five books of the Bible. It's it's one unified book in the Hebrew. Uh, It's one unified book, but in five parts, okay? When you read the Pentateuch, the Jews realized that these five books made up the book of Moses and that these five were a unified work. We we view them as five different books, and they are. But when you read them, try to understand them as being a part of a whole unit. Now, the Pentateuch was for the Jews at an early stage the word of the Lord. Before the rest of the Old Testament was given to them, the Pentateuch was the word of the Lord. It clearly communicated creation. What else? The call of Abraham and the covenant that God made with him and his descendants. The period of bondage in Egypt of the Hebrews and then their deliverance. And then the law that was given to them showing them how God's chosen people 
were to live. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, of course, Moses is reviewing all of this with them again because those who were about to enter into the promised land, they were among the children. You know, that those 20 and older had died off. And so many of them were either not born yet or didn't remember. Maybe they were too young. So the book of Deuteronomy is the review that Moses gives. Once they are delivered, the law is given and instructions for how they are to live in community. And then the sacrifices were spelled out. The sacrifices that were to be presented to the Lord. And so again, God tells them in the Pentateuch how His covenant people are to live and worship. And what do we also see in the Pentateuch? We see how God's people failed. And then how God responded. Okay? And finally, we see how, as I just mentioned, how God instructs the next generation once they cross the Jordan, get into the promised land, how they are to live. And so again, I want you to understand it is a unified story. These first five books of the Bible are a unified story. It's almost a shame that we either can't or don't take the time to sit down and read all five books in one sitting. Because really, again, that's, we, we need to understand it that way. I love the way Dr. Philip Ryken begins his commentary on Exodus. I want you to listen to his words. Uh, and I'm just going to read two paragraphs here. But he says, Exodus is an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. The adventure takes place under the hot desert sun just beyond the shadow of the great pyramids. There are two mighty nations, Israel and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, the enslaving villain. Almost every scene is a masterpiece. The baby in, a, in the basket, the burning bush, the river of blood, and the other plagues, the angel of death, the crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the thunder and lightning on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf and the glory in the tabernacle. Once heard, the story is never forgotten. For Jews, it is the story that defines their very existence, the rescue that made them God's people. For Christians, it is the gospel of the Old Testament, God's first great act of redemption. We return to the Exodus again and again, sensing that somehow it holds significance for the entire human race. It is the story that gives every captive the hope of freedom. Thus, it was only natural for African-American slaves, many of whom were Christians, to understand their captivity as a bondage in Egypt and to long for the day when they would be free at last. The Exodus shows that there is a God who saves, who delivers His people from bondage. I think that's a very good introduction as he begins 
uh, his work. Now, as scholars point out, the title Exodus simply means exit or departure. Now, the fir- believe it or not, the first appearance of that word does not occur all the way until chapter 19 and verse 1. That's the first occurrence of the word Exodus. And then that word, of course, was applied to the title, became the title of this book. When the, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, the verb used for their leaving Egypt was Exodus. In time, the word uh, again came to be used to describe the entire book, the second book of Moses. As Riken says, the Exodus then is a story of departure, an epic journey from slavery to salvation. Now, as the Christian Standard Bible points out, Exodus could be considered the central book in the Old Testament because it records God's act of saving the Israelites and establishing them as a covenant community, a nation chosen to serve and represent Him. In fact, the book of Exodus was repeatedly uh, looked upon the way it would look back uh, all through Israel's history, they would, they would continue to look back at the events of the Exodus and, and recount these events. It didn't matter if it was prophetic literature. It didn't matter if it was poetry or the Psalms or wisdom literature or prophets, historical narrative, whatever kind of genre of Scripture you find in the Old Testament, all through the rest of the Old Testament, it's common that the people of God, the Jews, would look back on the Exodus event and they would celebrate when God delivered them as a nation. And so it factors in very prominently to the rest of the Old Testament. And then, of course, what else do the Jews get in Jewish life from the book of Exodus? Many of the festivals that they celebrate annually, such as Passover would be the most famous, right? So all of that goes back to the book of Exodus. Now, again, the Christian Standard Bible says Exodus conveys Four strong messages. Number one, the Lord God. Elohim, the Almighty God, as I said Sunday, is also who? Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. The Almighty God who created all that is, who created the universe and who made men and women in His image. This is the God who loves his people and enters into a covenant with them. He is the great I am. Another thing it points out, uh, it's a book of redemption. The Israelites could not and did not save themselves. They cried out to God in their misery and their bondage and God raised up a deliverer, Moses. And God conquered Pharaoh and all of Egypt and delivered his people. 
And the Passover, of course, was established to serve as a reminder of what God did in their behalf. God redeemed His people. It's also a book characterized by law. God gave the Ten Commandments, followed by other laws and regulations of how His people were to live and worship. God did not redeem His people and deliver them so that they could in turn go out and live their lives any way they wanted to. He gave them laws and regulations instructing them how they were to conduct themselves. And then finally, it is a book uh, where Tabernacle factors in prominently. God gave detailed instructions of how the tabernacle was to be built and consecrated and who could lead the Israelites in worship. God's people were to be a worshiping community who glorified Him. Everything God did for them was for His glory. And they were to worship Him and glorify Him in all that they did. Now, it's important for Christians to see the book of Exodus uh, as a book that has a powerful message for us today. God has chosen us. God's chosen us. What's Paul say in 1 Corinthians? That Christ is our new what? Our new Passover lamb. Exactly. Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything that happened to the children of Israel happened as examples for us. Christ has fulfilled the law. He alone has completely satisfied all the demands of the law. He died for us. He set us free from bondage and slavery. The bondage and slavery of sin. When Christ died, what else took place? The veil was torn in two two from top to bottom, symbolizing what? That now, through Christ, our high priest, we can all go into the Holy of Holies. In fact, the church is God's new what? God's new tabernacle. We're the people of God. We're the tabernacle now, and God dwells in us. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then finally one day the New Testament points out that there is coming a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Referring to heaven. The book of Hebrews refers to a greater Sabbath rest that we're waiting for. And we're going to experience a grander and more marvelous exodus out of this world where currently we are strangers and sojourners and pilgrims, and we're going to go to a new promised land where there is no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. So, what am I saying here? I'm saying there's lots of parallels between the book of Exodus and our own experience. 
And we have a deliverer who is greater than Moses. Namely, Jesus Christ. God has redeemed us and set us free. Not so that we can now live any way we want to live. But as Paul says in Ephesians 4, that we will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, while we're in the world, we're going to face a lot of enemies and difficulties just like the Israelites did. As they had to remain a separate and holy people, you and I are called upon to be holy and separate in all that we do. Now, as Riken reminds us too, as we read the book of Exodus, we need to be biblical. In other words, he says we need to read and study the text of Scripture itself. We need to pour over the book chapter by chapter, drinking it in and not missing a single detail of it. As he also reminds us, we must approach Exodus historically. Some skeptics have tried to dismiss many things in the book of Exodus. But the Bible presents it as historical narrative. Presenting events as real events. Which we believe they were. And Christ and the apostles accepted it as historical narrative. One of the main reasons some dismiss Exodus is because we have such little certain knowledge of the date of the Exodus. Take out that sheet that I gave you and the debate continues on today, was the Exodus a 15th century event, which would put it somewhere around 1446 B.C., or was it a 13th century B.C. event? In other words, sometime around 1260 B.C. There's good reasons even biblical reasons for accepting either date. A strong case can be made for either date. And the conclusion is not as straightforward and easy as you might think it is. Now, I accept the, the 1446 B.C. date. But there's conservative scholars who also argue for the 1260 B.C. date. This is not an issue uh, of whether or not to believe the Bible or not because you have conservative Bible-believing scholars who fall into both camps. So take that sheet home. Again, that's right out of the ESV study Bible. And it kind of lays out some of the arguments for the 14... 46 date, and then some of the arguments for the 1260 date. Now, adding to the difficulties, and now folks, bear with me tonight, because anytime we start a new book, what do we spend a little bit of time doing? Sort of setting the table. That's what I'm doing tonight. Uh, we'll get more into the text at the end of, the, uh, end of tonight and, of course, in the weeks to come. 
But adding to the difficulties of the book of Exodus is the absence of archaeological evidence of Israel living in Goshen and also the silence of any records in Egypt. Now, neither one of those arguments is really that strong or poses that serious of problems. For one thing, the Nile Delta region was a wet area, especially at certain times of the year, that area would flood. And so coming out of that area of Goshen in ancient times, there's really not much that has survived, whether it's written documents or artifacts, anything like that. Things have not survived very well from that region of Egypt. And so the fact that there's not much archaeological evidence of Israel being there, I'm not saying there's not any, but I'm saying the reason there's not a lot is due in part to the climate. And that, that's why I say they found some things, like they found models of homes that were characteristic of Israelite homes, not Egyptian homes. Uh, so again, it's not that there's no archaeological evidence, there's just not a great deal. But again, this is not a surprise because of the climate of that area and the repeated flooding. And something about the Egyptians not having in their record books. That shouldn't surprise us at all because the Egyptians were a proud people. We see that even today in the Middle East. I mean, just think for a minute about all of the blustering that Saddam Hussein did. Remember some of his blustering? Okay. That's kind of characteristic of a lot of the, the culture in the Middle East. They don't admit or acknowledge failures. They boast greatly about their accomplishments and they even lie about their accomplishments and embellish their accomplish accomplishments. And so it's not very likely that the Egyptian records were going to preserve the storyline of how they lost an entire nation of slaves and were defeated and humiliated at the Red Sea. Because that's not a storyline that's going to advance their culture very well and what they wanted to portray to the world. And so the fact that there's not much evidence in Egyptian ancient records of Israel li living within their boundaries is not really a surprise at all. Now, on the other hand, in the Bible, you have the record of God's people about how they complained, how they were bitter, how they constantly bickered and didn't believe God or didn't believe Moses and how they worshipped the golden calf. If you were simply making up a story, it's not exactly what you would have written about yourselves, right? In fact, time you keep reading about the Israelites, you almost want to say, God, wipe them out and just start over with Moses. You get frustrated with the Israelites, don't you? 
You get frustrated also with Aaron, don't you? How could Aaron do some of the stuff he did? So again, if you were making up, if you were going to make up a storyline, if, if it wasn't real, this is not the way you would make it up. It just shows that we are encouraged not to praise the Israelites, but to rather praise their God. He's the one who is praiseworthy. We must also study the book of Exodus theologically. To study the book of Exodus is to encounter God. God hears the cries of His people. He's moved with compassion. He raises up Moses. He performs great miracles. He divides the sea. From beginning to end, Exodus is a God-centered book where the attributes of God are on display. So read the book theologically in that sense. Now, chapter 1 begins much like famous epics begin. Sort of in the middle of the storyline. The adventure is already underway. We see that uh, the 12 tribes of Israel are listed here. We're told that Joseph is already in Egypt. You have to read the book of Genesis. And how the book of Genesis develops. How the book of Genesis ends before you get into the book of Exodus. Because, folks, Exodus is essentially Genesis part two. It is the continuation of the storyline, what God began with the descendants of Abraham out of the book of Genesis. It's that same storyline that's continuing and advancing. Now, let me chase a rabbit here. That's why, as I've told you so many times before, the way we read our Bibles sets us up for defeat. Too many people take these little devotional books, uh, and and I hope... These little devotional books are not your only means of study. But so many people will take those little devotional books and that is the bulk of their time with the Lord every day. I know they have their place, but some of those books will have you in Genesis 1 today, maybe a few verses in Mark 2 tomorrow, a few verses in Deuteronomy the day after, a few verses in Revelation the day after that, and so forth, and so on. And if that's the way somebody reads and studies their Bible, their Bible is never going to make a great deal of sense to them. Folks, you've got to read your Bible the way God wrote it for it to make the best sense um, 
to you. But I, again, I see this all the time. I want to give you an example of what I'll see, what, what I'll hear people do all the time. All the time, people do something like, quote, Philippians 4.13. You know, they'll, they'll uh, be in a football game, and they'll chant, chant to themselves, Philippians 4.13, as though it's some kind of magic charm. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that ignores the whole point of Philippians 4.13. That ignores the whole point that Paul's making with that verse. What is Paul making? Paul is talking about himself being a missionary church planter. And he's in prison. And the Philippians have learned about his imprisonment. And so they've sent Epaphroditus to him with a gift. And he's appreciative of that gift. But he says, I want you to know something. As I've traveled around the Roman Empire and I've conducted my ministry and been doing missionary activity and church planning, there are times in my life as a missionary pastor I've had to live with very little, almost nothing, and yet God has provided for me and gotten me through. And there are other times, like now with you giving me this gift, that I've had an abundance And so there have been situations in life I've had nothing. There's been situations in life I've had a lot. And what God has taught me through it all, the way He looks after us, is I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever situation God puts me in while I'm serving Him, God's going to take care of me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It has nothing to do with kicking a 70-yard field goal, setting a new record, and winning the football game. But my point is, that's the kind of theology we develop in our minds when we grab a little verse here, and we grab a little verse there, and we grab a verse here, and we never study our Bibles the way it was written, and we never understand how the whole storyline fits together. And so then we grab these little verses and promises out of context, and we run with that, and we use those verses even in a way those verses were not written to be used. Maybe I ought to get off my soapbox now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And let me remind you, if you think you don't have time to read your Bible, when you read your Bible, you encounter God. And you find out His will. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. So if you want to know God, read and study your Bible. Well, I shot and killed that rabbit enough. Let's get back to the storyline. Back to the storyline. Verse 1. Verse 1 and following is a reminder of how Israel got down into Egypt. Without knowing Genesis, you would be left wondering why in the world Israel is now down in Egypt. You could understand a few people traveling down to Egypt, but why is all of Israel down in Egypt? 
Well, Genesis 37 to 50 tells us why. And what we've seen is what a mighty God Joseph served. God raised Joseph up. God worked in and through him. We are reminded that what a piece of work Joseph's brothers were. Joseph wasn't always a model son either, but his brothers, wow, some of them really pulled some doozies, didn't they? And think about their dad, Jacob. We're reminded that God is a God of grace. God uses very imperfect people, and it's a good thing He does, because if He didn't, none of us would stand a chance. So really, God is the only thing Joseph and his family have going for them. And that shouldn't surprise us. But verse 6 tells us that the time has come. Joseph and his brothers have now died off. They're gone. This whole generation. Folks, think about that. What a huge loss. All of these people who saw God do all that He did, that entire generation is now gone. I'm reminded in our own day, Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation. Have you ever read that book about the World War II generation? right after World War II. The builder generation. Some of you in here fit into that. If you haven't read that book, you need to. Because what's Tom Brokaw doing that book? Tell great stories about what the builder generation did in America. The sacrifices many of you did. And what you've accomplished. The builder generation is dying off. Big loss for our nation. Well, Joseph's generation is gone. What a huge loss for the Israelites. God buries his servants. But His work marches on. Amen? God raises up new servants. Don't miss verse 7. Verse 7 should carry us all the way back to God's promises to Abraham. Now, why do I say that? When we read here in verse 7, the Israelites had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Why do I say that takes us all the way back to Abraham? Exactly. God promised Abraham that he would multiply his descendants as the stars of the sky and like the sand of the, of the sea. That that's how numerous they would become. And so what's happening here? God's keeping His promise 
to Abraham. We serve a God who keeps his promises. Amen? When it says they filled the land, it could possibly mean that they filled the region of Goshen. I mean, it could mean they filled all of Egypt. But it's certainly at least at bare minimum because the Israelites lived in Goshen. Maybe they just busting at the seams there and filtering down into all of Egypt. But here they are. They've gone from 70 to now more than 2 million. They've become a numerous and a powerful ethnic subgroup in Egypt. And so with verse 7, we sense that something is about to happen. We read verse 6 and 7 and we know we're being set up for something. Something is about to happen. Something big is about to happen. And then with verse 8, we know something's about to happen. Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. Folks, how sad. A new king, a new generation of Egyptians, because remember, as Joseph's family has aged and died off, what would that mean? That would mean that the Egyptians, who were colleagues of Joseph, they would have died off too. And so here's, here's a new Egyptian pharaoh and other Egyptians now. And they don't remember anything about what Joseph has done. All of Egypt was saved during the years of famine because of Joseph. And here's this new generation that apparently knows nothing of it. That's, that's just sad. Again, we, we think of what we see how that happens. Because think about our own nation today. Kids in school are taught very little of history. It's not my purpose tonight to have a pep rally for America, but nonetheless, this generation now seems to have forgotten that it's been America that has helped a lot of people in the world. And I mean, you listen to some, some of the voices out there today and you would almost think America's a, a dog or something. And that all that's wrong in the world today is because of America. It's, it's sad how quickly people forget. So what I'm saying is when we see what's happening in our own day and age, it's easy to see right here when it says that they didn't remember anything about Joseph. We, we know how that happens and how quickly it can happen. Now folks, next week we're going to look more at chapter 1 and get a lot more into the biblical text. But what's going to be interesting is the fact that the more Pharaoh persecutes Israel, 
the more Israel is going to grow and prosper. It, it's funny if you think about it. Because here's Pharaoh and he thinks he's the one in charge. He's not in charge. God is in charge. The more Pharaoh does one thing, the more God count, cancels out what Pharaoh tries to do. It's ironic to the point of being funny. I think of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. You remember what Gamaliel said? Does anybody remember what he said to the religious leaders? Exactly. Gamaliel said to his peers, Guys, if the church is not of God, don't worry about it. It'll all come to naught. But if it is of God and you fight against it, you will find yourself fighting against God. What's Pharaoh going to end up doing? Fighting against God. He would have done well to have had a Gamaliel, Gamaliel in his court of advisors. Because it's not going to end up well for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. So stay tuned. Okay? Come prepared next week to get into verse 8 and following a whole lot more. And like I say, pardon the, all the background work tonight if that's not your thing, but I just happen to think when we start a new book in the Bible, we need to, we need to set the table a little bit. Okay? On the nation, yes, yes. We see how God turned a family into a nation.